Hello everyone, and welcome to Witch Hassle. I am, of course, your host, Cooper Wilhelm, and I am very pleased today to bring you my interview with Brian Johnson, who is the author of Necromancy in the Medici Library, an edition and translation of excerpts from Bibliotheca Medicia Lorenziana, MS Plut 89 Sup. We had a really great chat about this fascinating manuscript and about grimoire magic and where it fits in grimoire magic we also talked about him the man behind the translation so that was a lot of fun and i do hope you enjoy it and i want to get to that very quickly so we're going to do a, a short plague magic minute today and this one comes from meredith lynn's irish immigrant healing magic in 19th century new york and it points to red flannel being used by irish immigrants in New York City, go Mets, in the 19th century to treat whooping cough, sprain, and rheumatism. And it's interesting because it doesn't seem, at least from her indication, it doesn't seem that the flannel was used to make something or was ingested. It was simply sort of kept about for its apotropaic properties that seem to be rooted in its color because blue objects, so blue paper, blue cloth, were also pointed to as being used to cure, among other things, nosebleeds. So something about the color seems to be important. But what's interesting also is that she points to the idea that there is very scant evidence of the magical and folk ways of healing among this particular community at this particular time, in part because it was suppressed by the Catholic Church in New York as a way of avoiding, I guess, looking bad? by association, the idea that this large, you know, Catholic immigrant population was doing folk magic was, was going to reflect poorly on the Catholic Church of New York City. And in fact, at one point, a father, Thomas Adams, who was serving a parish in Brooklyn, but was originally from County Kerry, was suspended in 1893 for using relics to cure the sick and disabled. So, you know, uh, I guess thaumaturgy was seen as bad for PR, which is, I imagine, very unfortunate. But Hopefully that suspension didn't last too long for, for old Father Tom there. So there's your Plague Magic Minute. Now on to the interview. Brian Johnson is a translator. He's an editor. And he, in addition to this new translation that he did of a excerpt or a group of excerpts from a manuscript that used to belong to the Medicis, uh, he's also done a translation of A Testament of Solomon which you should check out. And this is coming out from Hadean Press. It was supposed to come out yesterday, but it is coming out apparently on the 13th because there's been a delay with the printers, which is interesting because I also heard recently that there's been a delay with the new edition of the Modern Language Association Style Guide. So I wonder if something bad is just happening in the realm of turning ideas into printed matter right now. I, I'm sure if someone who knows about astrology you could probably point to some, like maybe we're in a bad decan for that sort of thing. But anyway, here's the interview. I do hope you enjoy it. This book, very lovely. Um, how did you first come across this manuscript? Well, uh, I don't recall exactly what I was researching at the time, but I know that I, uh, I ended up on uh, Joseph Peterson's Esoteric Archives website, looking up something on the Lamegaton because I, I found a note there to the effect that this manuscript that I have translated part of here from the uh, 
Biblioteca Medicae Lorenziana manuscript Fluteus 8938 apparently had a, uh, a number of sigils associated with a catalog of spirits like the Lamegaton that differ significantly from those versions. And so I, I was curious about that, decided to take a look and realized that this was a gigantic 600-page manuscript full of all kinds of other things. And so I, I, I probably spent a couple hours just looking through the entire thing and gradually realized that there were some pretty unique elements in there that I thought other people might be interested in getting a look at as well. So I initially just started translating a few bits and pieces for my own curiosity, but it, it all just kind of started to come together into a coherent little necromantic handbook, I guess. That's really, that's really lovely. That feels very sort of serendipitous, but I, I always love hearing people falling down these kinds of, these holes of just like one thing kind of leads to another. What do we, what do we really know about sort of this book and who wrote it and what it might've been used for? Cause I mean, if, it, if it's coming from a Medici library, should we be assuming that this was possessed by some sort of, you know, member of the clerical underground in the employ of the Medicis or, or is this sort of more probably like a curiosity possessed by a book collector or something like that? Well, we can have a pretty fair idea that the manuscript itself was assembled, at least, probably at Rome shortly before or sometime around the year 1494. Because it, oddly enough, for a, a, a manuscript of this type, it actually contains a uh, a date as to when it was completed, or at least a significant portion of it was completed. As to how it came into the hands of the Medici, we know that the family was effectively exiled from their previous home in Florence between actually 1494 and around 1527. So it it seems likely to me, at least, that it would have come into their possession sometime during their stay at Rome, dur during which time two of their members became pope, in fact. As to how it actually entered their collection, I really couldn't say. Okay. And you mentioned, I think in the introduction, that the prefix for the manuscript indicates that this was a book that would have just sort of been sitting on a desk in a library just waiting to sort of be looked at. And given the content, which I, I, we, we'll, we'll talk about in more detail later, but like given that it's full of things like, here's what to do with a dead body to make something happen. Is there, is there a sense that this sort of thing was a dangerous book to leave out in the open? Or, or is this, like, what's the, the regulatory atmosphere around something like this at the time right i i get what you're saying and again i i can't know for certain but i think there are a couple considerations that we need to take about this first is that a, a public library in the 16th century would be quite different from our modern idea of a lending library. And while I, I'm not certain of the Laurentian Library's original 
policies and protocols at that time. I think we can recall that the library itself was physically located within the Basilica of San Lorenzo, which itself was a, uh, a Medici foundation. And I would suspect that there was a good deal of oversight and gatekeeping going on, even if the collection was nominally open to all the people of Florence. And second would be that I, th I, th I think the very fact that the manuscript has survived to the present day may be an indication of just how uh, effective the uh, policing uh, going on was. And I also should note that the library's cataloging practices may have actually had something to do with this, with keeping it under wraps to a certain extent, because it's it's actually listed in the catalog as Fasciculus Rerum Geomanticarum, even though geomancy makes up just a negligible portion of its actual contents. So maybe that was intentional? I, I really don't know. That is interesting. And I guess it, it is fair to also remember that one thing that this library might have had in common with, with contemporary libraries is that if they're big enough, a lot of those books simply don't get opened very often. Definitely. So you you mentioned that, that this is a book that has some very unique features in terms of how it deals with spirits. And I, I, am, I am curious because, you know, there is a fair amount of overlap, I think, between this book and the Munich Manual. Yes, it shares a number of texts with that other manuscript. Where where are some of the key differences here? Is it just that there are sort of different sigils being employed or is there is there other stuff going on? Well, it's really just a it's it's a it's a, a relatively small subset of the, the material in both the Florence Codex and the Munich Manual that they share in common. It's a handful of specific necromantic or uh, demonic experiments. Other than that, the Munich Manual's other contents include things such as, recalling off the top of my head, there's a little bit of angel magic, similar to what's found in the Heptameron, I believe, some instructions for consecrating a Liber Spiritum, whereas the Florence Codex contains everything from medical alchemy to a, a little bit of geomancy. <laughs> excerpts from the Picatrix and its own little seemingly unique handbook of instructions for timing conjurations according to astrological principles. So there's, aside from the few discrete experiments, which granted, I, I, I have actually focused on in the portion of the manuscript that I translated here, the rest of the two texts actually differ quite a bit. And in terms of the, the sort of necromantic material, where would you sort of place this in the tradition of things like the Lamegaton or or like, I don't know, let's say the Grimoire Barum or something like that? Like there, there's certainly some overlap here, but like how much does this sort of stand on its own? I think the important thing to stress is that this is a collection of bits and pieces that the scribe or scribes pulled from sources ranging from the Picatrix to the Roman liturgy. In no way is it a neat systematic guide for a particular ritual framework that you might find in more familiar grimoires like the various keys of Solomon or the Grimorium Verum. So I, I, I don't think it 
it uh, can be said to belong to any particular branch of a grimoire tradition. It's pretty clearly one practitioner's personal handbook. That being said, it does seem to synthesize the sources that it draws from, which may uh, reflect the personal practice of its original owner to some extent. But you do get the sense sort of that this is this is a book that has the marks of someone who is working through it and that's why they have it as opposed to like, you know, um, some attempt at simply maintaining a record or some kind of sort of armchair theorizing that this has this has some indications that this was definitely a book that got used by someone. I would say almost definitely. There are, in fact, in a couple places, there are annotations that were clearly written in after the fact, which appear to reflect considerations as to particular materia magica and like what their particular qualities should be or or where to find them something that like really caught my eye and i thought was very interesting about this book is is the stance the practitioner is supposed to take toward the sort of infernal spirits that one is conjuring and working with because it does feel sort of like if we zero in for a second on, on, on a particular ritual, I think this might be kind of illustrative of this. So there's the experiment in here, the experiment of Michael Scott, the necromancer. Yes. And broadly speaking, what is the experiment of Michael Scott, necromancer, supposed to achieve? It's almost a necromantic ars notoria, <laughs> is how I like to think of it. It's a fairly complex ritual for first conjuring three demonic kings who are then to bring the operator literally the the ghost of a university professor a a magister who will then teach the operator knowledge of whatever arts or sciences are desired this operation like it's it's not sort of a is it is it kind of like a one and done kind of thing or does it feel like something that you would do as part of an ongoing relationship. The operation itself is it's intended to be undertaken over the course of 30 days, which I, I suppose could mean either I, I don't know if it, it it's it's not explicitly stated, but it could be a matter of you get one question per day or 30 days is just the duration of the contract, so to speak. But there is definitely some kind of semi-permanent relationship established with the ghost, actually, more so than the three kings, because during the interview with the ghost, which actually takes place during a dream incubation, the operator is instructed to record the spirit's name and order before proceeding further with the, the questioning, which leads me to believe that it's establishing the protocols for contacting that spirit again at a later date. And this this is interesting to me in part because I think that there is a kind of growing appreciation or a growing amount of research into specifically this this trope of the use of a tutelary shade of a, of a ghost that teaches you things and it's a human ghost as opposed to you know summoning a demon or something like that with a specific set of knowledge do you see something like this experiment of michael scott necromancer as fitting into a larger tradition or do you see it as something where this is a technique that might have been sort of independently arrived at in a kind of idiosyncratic way. 
I think it definitely fits into a, a much longer and broader tradition of various necromantic practices within the history of Western magic. We can see this everywhere from more recent examples like the graveside divination in the grimoire of Arthur Gauntlet, all the way back to necromantic love spells in the Greek magical papyri. And I think through the scholarship of people like Al Cummins and Phil Lagarde with their excellent book of the art of magic, a recent paper published by Dan Harms, and a number of books on the Greek and Roman world by Daniel Ogden and Sarah Isles Johnston, I think all go to demonstrate just how strong a necromantic undercurrent has informed practices throughout the rest of the Western magical tradition. There's something kind of beautiful about that. Actually, in a recent interview you did with Glitch Bottle, which is a lovely interview that people should also check out and hopefully will not overlap too much with this one, but you mentioned that while you were working on this book, you you noticed some coincidences or other kinds of, I don't know, uh, gusts of spiritual wind about that kind of seemed to indicate that maybe you were getting some kind of tutelary necromantic vibrations of some sort or another while you were doing this. Could you speak on that a little bit? Sure. It's It seems to be the impetus for a lot of my research projects, really. They're, they're largely serendipities along the lines of unlooked-for manuscripts or other sources that will just kind of suddenly jump out at me out of nowhere in the midst of researching something completely unrelated and just kind of compel me by the sheer fact that virtually no one else appears to be paying any attention to them. And I'm not sure how literally I believe it myself, but, you know, if we we look at stories going back as early as the Odyssey, they pretty clearly indicate that the dead don't want to be forgotten. So who am I to look a gift horse in the mouth? I mean, it is it is nice when the partnership is offered. So I, I take it you probably, it sounds like you didn't go so far as to like try to conjure the shade of, of Michael Scott, necromancer. But what do we know about Michael Scott, the necromancer? I'm resisting the, the office joke, but like... <laughs> I, I already made that joke, you recall, from the uh, the Glitch Bottle podcast. Okay, then we we absolutely cannot make that joke here. We, we're, I'm going to strike it from the record. So who is Michael Scott, necromancer? That name is completely unfamiliar to me. I know nothing about anyone with a similar name who has ever existed. Is he from Scotland? What do we know about him? Uh, yes, he was from Scotland. <laughs> so in real life, he was a mathematician, astrologer, and translator who spent a number of years in the early 13th century at the court of Emperor Frederick II as a kind of science advisor, really, on all of those topics, as well as working on translations of Aristotle and Averroes. In popular legend, probably due largely to the reputation of scientific learning in general at that time, and possibly also due to his cameo in Dante's Inferno, he quickly became known after his own lifetime as a wizard and was attributed all sorts of incredible feats that were performed through his collaboration with demons. It is, it is nice to develop a positive reputation after one dies, you know, in recognition of your great work, whether it's true or not. Something that 
struck me about this ritual is that it's 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 pretty involved, right? It's not just that it's it happens over thirty days. We're also, you know, there's a there's a sword. You are plucking the heart from a bird and using that to to draw something. So like we're 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 really kind of we're really getting into it. And how does that sort of square with dream incubation rites in general? Like, cause I I I I was thinking about this in terms of the um, dream incubation rites that show up in Skinner and Rankin's book of secrets, which is, you know, a welcome manuscript MS 4669. And these, this seems like, if you want to get a dream, this seems like a very intense way of going about that. It is a very complex operation. It even calls for animal sacrifice at one point and it does involve significantly more individual spirits and ritual paraphernalia than what's really a functionally similar conjuration of Azariel again from the uh, the grimoire of Arthur Gauntlet it's it's hard to say if this represents something like a simplification in methods over time between the you know late 15th and say 17th centuries, or if these are just two different perspectives on what's necessary for making contact with the departed. By the same token, though, it, it's not significantly more complicated than some of the similar operations found in the Greek magical papyri. So it may really just be a matter of parallel traditions. Something else that sort of struck me is the kind of working relationship one is to build with the spirits involved in this right because i mean there there's there's some sort of standard kind of you know bullying that goes on but at one point you know you sort of you surrender your sword it moves to language sort of on the lines of sort of beseeching rather than commanding and so i i am curious like what what are we to sort of glean from this right about the sort of sense that its author might have had in terms of like what demons are and what sort of stance we're supposed to take with them. Yeah, it it re- is really interesting in that respect. To follow on from your own examples there, we could also note that early on in the experiment, the operator asks God to, I can quote a short passage here, lend to me the guardianship of an angel of yours who shall guard, protect, and defend me, and be of help in the completion of this work, and make me able to prevail against all spirits, and even to rule them. But then, after the demonic trio have been conjured, the operator proceeds to call them, you three great kings and my companions, which I I find a fascinating tidbit, and not, not the kind of language that I can recall seeing in any other conjurations of this kind. I think what we might be seeing here is a kind of cautious desire to work with these, what are clearly recognized as powerful supernatural beings on something approaching a basis of mutual respect, almost like the operator knows that they're dangerous. So he invokes the protection of the highest possible authority to kind of constrain them and keep them in line. But once that's all established, he seems to be doing his best to almost make a good impression and uh, just try to get along. (laughs) I feel like that's a good protocol for any workplace, really. But something that kind of muddies these waters even further or maybe kind of complicates things a little bit more is this admonition we are given, do not make the sign of the cross at 
these demons because it will it will lead to a certain amount of peril and there's this there, there's a lot of danger in this book a lot of open danger like i believe the initial operation for for invisibility warns the operator that if they do not fulfill a certain aspect of it they will die in seven days without really mentioning how so it's it's a, it's a very much a kind of the ring kind of scenario so how worry does the author of this tract really seem to be about being a magician like how much confidence is there in the ability of a magician to harness the divine to protect themselves from the infernal that's a really good question on one hand we can't know exactly what the person who collected these operations thought they would be able to accomplish with them but I think that the fact that they went to the trouble of tracking down these rituals and keeping this book in their possession, which in itself at that time would have presented a considerable legal risk, I would wager that they were willing to hold out the possibility, at least, that these operations would be effective in something like the way that they presented themselves to be. So this is, you know, there's, there's there's a strong sense here that, you know, this is this is something that you could really try to do without, you know, blowing yourself up in the sort of, you know, kitchen chemistry class kind of way. I I think so. I think that that was that was at least the hopeful possibility. And do we get a sense that I mean to tease this out a little further? There's there there is a moment in this in this Michael Scott experiment where these three demonic kings are conjured to to quote on behalf of omnipotent god who commanded them according to their office to enter deep tombs and so there there is a sense here that that the sort of specializations that we typically find in the spirit catalogs of grimoires where you know you have the you have an infernal hierarchy and each you know demon is sort of listed as being you know great at this thing useful for this they you know move bodies from place to place etc or they can teach you everything about metallurgy or something like that do you get the sense that the author or authors of of this this manuscript thought that these sorts of jobs and hierarchies were divinely ordained or is this just sort of a sort of strange turn of phrase and really we should we should understand that you can use the divine to bully the infernal but the divine doesn't actually like pay a lot of attention as to what's going on in hell most of the time that's an interesting hypothesis i think one that i hadn't really considered explicitly before but i think ultimately from the orthodox christian perspective demons are only allowed to do anything on earth with god's permission so i suppose it's really only kind of a small step from there to positing that there's some kind of pre-established system to govern that activity rather than dealing with it on a case-by-case basis so if there's any kind of consciously articulated framework behind what we're seeing in the text I suppose it could be something like that. Okay, I mean that makes that makes sense. Like a like a demonic kind of work visa that is only for particular occupations. I can I'll buy that. So in terms of I mean like we've we spent a lot of time talking about the experiment, of Michael Scott. I don't want to do that to the diminishment of everything else because it is you know there's a lot in here. 
even in what is admittedly sort of an, an excerpt of a larger piece. But let's talk about some of the other sort of magical technologies that, that pop up in this. So we have the use of a corpse in a rite involving a pin. We have the use of a mirror. We have the sending of a demon to drive someone insane. What would you say is sort of your your favorite aspect of this? What is the thing that sort of was the most exciting for you to work with? One of the most interesting ideas presented in any of the experiments is actually in the operation to drive your enemy insane, where it seems to be suggested that the demon that you are conjuring to do this actually physically enters the brain of the victim. That That's the kind of language it uses, which is not a concept that I can recall seeing elsewhere in even this kind of attack magic, having the spirit in question physically enter the victim. Given what we know about the sort of medical science at the time, was the brain associated with thought that early? I'm not positive about that. Although, I mean... I suppose this spell would seem to be evidence that it was. One of the features of this book that I find very interesting is that it appears, and please do correct me, but it does appear that the original text was written in verse. Is that is that fair, or is that just, it's just a sort of a thin text column? It's interesting. I wouldn't have thought to characterize it as poetry per se, but at the same time, insofar as the Roman Catholic liturgy can be considered a form of poetry, then all of the invocations and exorcisms incorporated into the manuscripts, various experiments, certainly owe a lot to that genre. I think that aside from any aesthetic considerations, I think the liturgy, especially for a magician who would have been immersed in a thoroughly Catholic culture like 15th century Italy, it would have represented a kind of authoritative form of communication that presumably both the operator and the spirits would be expected to recognize and submit to. Is that more or less how, because the, the Psalms pop up a fair amount in here, is that more or less how those sort of, uh, how those are operate as well? Or is there something sort of specific to how Psalms in particular are used in these operations? The Psalms seem to be invoked in a way that's, it's similar to what's, what's known as historiola, where the events of a, a biblical text are kind of, they're invoked almost in a, a kind of sympathetic way, where the operator is hoping to kind of recapitulate for themselves the events that are narrated or described in a biblical story or uh, a psalm, for example. Okay, so this, this is sort of like a, a kind of creating context in a sort of right or is this sort of more on the lines of like the sort of theory that cadmus puts forth that we can understand to some extent grimoire magic operating under the auspices of sort of presenting a narrative that you are recreating to kind of give the the spirits a sense of narrative force that they must sort of comply with the story as it has already been told I think it is more closely the latter. It's it's definitely it's it's an attempt to recreate a story that was originally populated by you know lit- literally supernatural or at at least in some way holy individuals and by placing yourself into that same narrative hoping to invoke 
that same power. That is that is interesting that, that this that this is a book that sort of mixes different kinds of authority, right? There is the authority of using the sort of the name of God or the idea of God. There's the authority of actually calling upon an angelic spirit to be your your bad cop when you want to be good cop. And then there's this sort of textual authority as well. How unique is this kind of mixing of different sources of authority? In, I guess it's not really a coherent system per se, so it would make sense that there'd be an admixture, but does this feel like more mixed than you tend to find in grimoires? While I can't cite any specific examples off the top of my head, it doesn't seem terribly unusual. I know that I've come across similar conjurations that basically seem to grab for anything and everything that they can think of that might be useful. I, I think there, there, there may be some, some good examples in Francis Young's recent edition of the Cambridge Book of Magic. I seem to recall a number of those operations that just seem to invoke every, every saint and name of God that they could think of uh, in hopes of constraining a, a spirit or uh, bringing about some other desired effect. I guess that, that, you know, if you can try one thing, you might as well try everything at some point. Yeah, right. <laughs> Actually, speaking of the practicalities and the kind of potentially, you know, the, the, these, these experiments of efficacy with magic, let's talk for a minute about your, your own magical practice, if we might. What kinds of magic-y stuff do you get up to besides these forms of textual necromancy that you are engaged in? So I've noticed there's been a lot of social media chatter lately about daily practice as part of a uh, magical life. Honestly, I don't do that. <laughs> Except, you know, insofar as I'm always open to applying a certain nonlinear interpretive lens to daily experience and suspending disbelief when necessary. Magic is not a devotional activity for me. I use it in a targeted way to nudge probability where I want it to go in specific cases. It's really a tool for me. In practical terms, this usually takes the form of a more or less modified version of some operation from the Picatrix more often than anything. I, I, I guess I just, I like that book for its flexibility and kind of modular approach. And I've frankly been satisfied with the results I've gotten from it. Wow, okay, that's, that's I think, probably the best recommendation that one can give and that also covers we were i was going to maybe try a lightning round of really fast questions with you there but actually before we even before we get to that i don't want to let you go before asking you about an article that you wrote coming up on five years ago now called revolutionary spirits and occult strategies of resistance oh wow you found that <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we all have our methods of digging things up, but it came out in May of 2016. So I think before the word resistance kind of took on its internet life as being very specific to the whole Trump phenomenon and all that. But briefly, could you could you give people a sense of what that article sort of delves into in terms of the role that spirits and spirit possession can have in disrupting or navigating systems of power. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've looked at it, but I, I think my argument was basically something to the effect 
that the sheer unpredictability and otherness of the spirit possession phenomenon creates, in a way, a space in the public narrative to effect change that would not have seemed possible otherwise. Do you do you see a potential for spirit possession to operate in that way in some form or another in the American political context? Because I mean, does it does it does it really depend on the idea of like a shared spiritual milieu between those in power and those without it? to sort of acknowledge that this can play a material role in the world? Or is there an avenue for this in our current political time and space? I think there is, because while it may be more effective in a certain way, if both parties accept the epistemological reality of spirits acting in the world or acting through individuals, I think that even if it is more of a one-sided affair, and only those people who are trying to effect some type of social change are really open to the possibility or the you know very immediate experience of spirit possession, I think that it still opens up new possibilities for action for them and possibly avenues of intervention that may not have been apparent or seemed possible to them otherwise. So it sounds like there's definitely a sort of idea that that possession can lead to an expanding of the political imagination. Yes, I would agree with that. In your own practice, do you do a lot in the way of, you know, voluntary possession, things like that? Uh, no, I, I, uh, I cannot say that I, that I, uh, have ever experienced any phenomenon like that myself. Actually, let's move into the, the, the lightning round, which I will announce with some kind of sound effect, I'm sure. Through the magic of editing. Lightning round. Lightning round. In what ways have you sort of experienced the phenomenology of, of spirit contact? When a spirit shows up, what do you see as sort of the hallmarks of that experience? Honestly, for me, it it comes down almost entirely to the kind of synchronicities, serendipities that we've uh, that we were talking about, and also I, I would say effective results. But I I have never had a uh, strong sensorial experience of spirit presence. I, I don't tend to see or hear entities like that in any kind of direct way. Basically, I rely on my own inferences from the practical results arising from various ritual undertakings for my uh, my confirmation. Mm, okay, so it is very much a kind of, you see the invisible hand only in the results that it produces. Maybe I shouldn't have used that exact phrasing because now I feel like we're turning into a kind of, you know, the economics of spirit contact, which just, I mean, I'm sure there's a doctoral dissertation in there if there isn't one already. So it sounds like if I were to say, what is your favorite grimoire, you'd probably say the Picatrix or... Yes, if if we can classify the Picatrix as a grimoire, I would definitely choose that one. Otherwise, it tends to be whichever one I just got done either 
reading or translating. Okay. Actually, speaking of translation, do you have a new translation project kind of on the horizon, or are you going to, you know, like, kind of, you know, take a moment to savor the victory of this beautiful thing that isn't even, isn't even technically out yet? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely still decompressing. Uh, but I always have, you know, half a dozen half-started, half-finished projects on, on the back burner. I'm, I'm translating bits and pieces of uh, a few different things that may very well never go anywhere, but mostly just to fulfill my own curiosity. Something I, I also wanted to make sure I ask you about, which I think we're moving out of the auspices of this loose framework of the lightning round, which is fine, I think, because it's not really a game show, because the game that we are playing is that of, of gaining knowledge where everybody wins. But you have worked a lot with RPGs. Yes. And I am curious, because I have found recently that there is a fair amount of overlap between people who engage with magic as an actual sort of presence in the world and people who kind of engage with it through the sort of fantasy lens of the RPG. And I, I am curious, what kind of relationship do you have in your own sort of work with this? Like, do you find yourself drawing from actual sort of grimoire traditions and the practical experiences that you have when you're working with RPGs? Or do you sort of leave the world of the RPG to its own its own logic, its own lore, its own its own sort of unique language of what magic is and should be? Well, as for my professional work with uh, role-playing games, I'm largely an editor, so I'm kind of helping to shape and refine other people's work. So I, I don't have a huge amount of creative input in that respect. Now, when I'm, when I'm playing role-playing games, what I really like to do, and, and, and this, of course, varies a lot from, from game to game, depending on what kind of a you know, imagined world it's taking place in. But I like to find the elements of of real-world magical traditions that the authors of these games have either consciously or subconsciously or completely unknowingly incorporated into the fantasy of their creation. I mean, even if we, we look back at the earliest editions of Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> you know, Gary Gygax and Arneson and company clearly had some knowledge of actual grimoire protocols in some of the the descriptions in various summoning spells in the in the player's handbook. So they they were not ignorant of this kind of thing. Do you ever find that it kind of can go both ways, that there's sort of a, you know, you might be pursuing some kind of magical working, or you're maybe even looking at sort of like a translation project that you're doing, and you can take some kind of inspiration from, you know, the fictional magics available in the RPG world? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the image of the D&D wizard is almost naturally appealing to people of a scholarly bent. I always like to say that the D&D wizard is the fantasy that if you just read enough books, you can acquire godlike power. And I, I, I think that it's an appealing and romantic persona that certainly does help to, I suppose, reinforce the ego in, in a, uh, a helpful way. 
Right. In the same way that we might during a, a spell sort of say like, you know, I am King Solomon. I am, you know, Hermes Trismegistus. You could just say I am the level 45 wizard who, you know, is going through the dungeon. I possess these powers for the purposes of this ritual. Actually, something about the sort of the, the, the wizard of lore, I think a little bit more than sort of our, our mundane reality of wizardry that I was thinking about as I was sort of putting together notes for this interview is the idea of, you know, the wizard who has the book and the book is inspirited and the book, you know, has sort of a, an, an identity and a, and a kind of personality and maybe it, its own wants and its own desires. And you quoted... Umberto Echo at one point sort of out there in the world with the idea that a translator's job is not to translate the intention of the author of a book, but rather to translate the intention of the book itself. And I wonder, do you did you find yourself in, in doing this translation or in doing your translation of the Testament of Solomon that that is also, you know, that's out there in the world for people to buy and scoop up? Do you find yourself trying to build a partnership with the sort of personality of a text? Or do you, do you find yourself sort of like looking through it to whoever was doing it? I think I do tend to approach a text more trying to recover the voice of the author more so than... I guess I, I don't do a very good job of differentiating the author from the, uh, the work that the text itself is doing. So I guess I'm I'm a uh, I'm a bad postmodernist in that way, but uh, I definitely, especially as a translator, I do feel that I'm I'm trying to recover the author's voice in a way, or if not their voice, at least the job that they were trying to get the text to do. That's lovely because it does kind of make you a partner in that work. You have you have a command of Latin, you have a command of Greek, and you've you've you know this this manuscript was in Latin. Um, I believe the Testament of Solomon that you translated and published uh, earlier that was that was in Greek uh, originally, I believe. That's right. So this leaves then German. Are there any German language magical texts that you can see yourself translating at some point? in the future because when i when i think of like sort of like traditional magical texts that we might associate with germany they don't necessarily pop up in german that much maybe i'm i I just i'm dealing with a limited scope i mean something like say like the famous munich manual you've got something that's written primarily in latin and then you've got something like say i don't know the long lost friend which um i believe was originally in german but is is something that we you know might associate more with say the the sort of pennsylvania dutch and so i don't know if that's that, that has like a sort of dialect issue going on with that but is there anything sort of in german that you see yourself translating in the near future that has to do with uh, magic and its doings well i know that there are a number out there i believe there are a number that have been translated i know in the uh the so-called faustian tradition in, in particular there's one i believe the original german title is hurlenswang something like that which i believe translates as something like conjuration or binding of hell more or less love it okay sorry keep going yes no no it's uh but i i believe that some version of that at least has has been translated fairly recently what I try to look for in any text that I'm going to put the work into doing an extensive translation, I, I, I do try to find things that that haven't seen the light of day in a long time. And I have 
done a little bit of looking in a couple different online repositories of digitized manuscripts. And the problem I run into more than anything is that the texts that are available from the, mostly from the 17th century and later, the handwriting has just developed in such an extremely elaborate and flowery way that I haven't yet been able to wrap my amateur paleography skills around it in order to to read it in any in any kind of a uh, efficient manner how do you build paleography skills is it just sort of a practice thing or is there a kind of theory and method that people should be sort of going after if this is something they want to pursue i mean i, I i'm sure there are better ways to do it than than uh the the kind of ad hoc approach that i've taken as frankly an amateur but you know every individual scribe and, and not just individual scribes, but I mean, the same scribe across a span of, you know, even a couple of years is not going to write the same way every time. I mean, it sounds like there's no sort of universal way of dealing with this just because even individuals might write very differently over the course of their lifetimes. And so the idea of trying to find like a, like a generalizable method of paleography might, might be something that will elude us. Yeah, I mean, there there are certainly conventions, especially around things like, like shorthand. And there are certainly standardized scribal hands that conform to a, a certain uh, standard set of, of letter forms. But all that being said, there, there's still going to be a great deal of variation between scribes and, as you say, even within the corpus of any particular writer. I guess you really do need to sort of get to know a writer as a, almost as a person to sort of be able to really deal with the, the work that they are transmitting. That's absolutely the case, uh, in, in my experience at least. Every new manuscript I've worked on, it starts off very slow, and but gradually as you become more familiar with the the style and the the idiosyncrasies it becomes much easier another another kind of wonderful working relationship this has been really lovely and i appreciate you taking the time before we go there's there's something from the from the list of sort of you know speed questions Lightning round. that i i would like to run by you because I, th I think it would be a good thing to close on maybe but that is as a magician and as a translator what would you say is the worst piece of advice you were given in either of these? And what is a piece of advice that you would give for people generally instead? Well, I, in, in my career, I haven't personally asked for or received much magical advice. But I think an idea that I see thrown around in, in certain circles that just seems, just seems wrong to me, I guess, is that Syncretism or eclecticism are in some way necessarily bad or or render a practice worthless if you aren't recreating verbatim what this or that ancient or you know several hundred year old text dictates that just seems both historically and experientially incorrect to me because i mean we can see from the textual record itself that 
the the people writing these things down certainly weren't rigorously recreating everything that had gone before them. And they were certainly pulling together and, and synthesizing material from most likely every source they could get their hands on because they 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 didn't have Google. <laughs> That's I think that is a, a good point though. Like the dead are a living tradition. Absolutely. Um, well that's lovely. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This has been such a joy. If people want to learn more about this book, about the other things you've written, about you and the stuff that you do, where should they go? Where should they turn? What should they type into Google? First, I want to give you my thanks for having me on. If anyone wants to find me on the internets, if you're interested in what I might be currently working on, I would recommend finding me on Twitter. I'm at J-O-H-B-R-I. I tend to post little bits of working notes or commentary on, on whatever I'm, I'm, I'm currently interested in, at least. My professional website, which has links to all of the gaming and uh, other publications, scholarly and otherwise, that I've worked on, is bjohnsonfreelance.com if you'd like to check that out and that's that's about the extent of my public facing internet presence all right and i'll, I'll put links to all that in the show notes so that people can can track that down with ease thank you so much to brian i will put up a link where you can pre-order that book because that is still available for pre-order and I will put links to his various internet presences. And I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, this has been a grand old pleasure. Uh, we'll have a new episode probably within the next six to seven hours. And if you like the show, if you like what I'm doing on here, go to patreon.com slash witchhassle and maybe throw some money my way. There's some there's a library of content there that is very slowly growing, you know, very uh, it's a build-up sort of similar to the building up of a coral reef over many decades. But it is happening. And if you want to reach out, I'm on Twitter at WitchHassle, though I tend to tweet more from my personal account at Cooper Wilhelm because that's where I, you know, put all sorts of things. Maybe it's not magic. Maybe it's um, communism or my feelings about Brian Fuller. I was re-watching Hannibal recently, and it really is, uh, it goes too far, but it's a joy. It's a very... You know, there's there's so much pleasure and excess in that. Anyway, uh, this has been Witch Hassle. Good luck with the work ahead. Bye.